Please be seated. The New Testament reading this evening comes from Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Old Testament reading this evening is Psalm 20. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you, in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation, and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is the word of the Lord. If there's one British export that Americans seem to enjoy the most, maybe even more than Downton Abbey, it's the drama of the royal family. This hasn't always been the case. Uh, Back in 1776, royal antics didn't play quite so well this side of the Atlantic. But these days, Americans seem quite happy to follow along with this particular reality show, even though they no longer pay the taxes that support it. Over in the UK, they have a song. Uh, It it goes to the same tune as My Country Tis of Thee, Uh, But it's called God Save the King or God Save the Queen, depending on the gender of the current monarch. It's a fun tune to sing, uh, although I have to say I'm not quite a fan of some of those later versions about crushing rebellious Scots. 
Well, our psalm today is the original God Save the King. In fact, it almost includes that exact line. And we're entering into a group of psalms that are all about kingship. Uh, the king was mentioned in the Psalter all the way back in Psalm 2. But we see no mention of God's king from Psalm 2 all the way to Psalm 18. Sure, we see David struggling, um, but is a very individual, and he, he's not called a king until the end of Psalm 18. That's what we started our service out with today. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. There's not just the word king here, there's also the word anointed. In Hebrew, that's Mashiach or Messiah. This is the title that becomes translated Christ in Greek. And so it will turn out to be one of Jesus' most common descriptors. But although this title points us to Jesus, it can be used to refer to any of the Davidic kings because they're the ones that God has anointed and set apart as his chosen king. Psalm 18 introduces us to this king Messiah who will become such an important theme in the whole rest of the Psalter. Besides the king, the people of God have only made the most sporadic occurrences so far in the Psalms. But here they are in Psalm 20, and they suddenly have a voice. There are two voices in this Psalm. There's an individual voice of David, the king, in verse 6. But throughout the rest of the Psalm, it, the voice is a communal, we the people voice. And this people speak to the king. The you that is repeated throughout the psalm is singular, not plural. Uh, the people are speaking to the king. Now that Psalm 18 has breached the topic of kingship, Psalms 20 through 24 are all going to focus around this theme. And although the Psalter is not necessarily chronologically organized, uh, we could perhaps see this set of psalms as representing David's coronation. And since Psalm 19 has focused us upon God's law, these psalms come together to paint a picture of God's people centered around God's law and God's king. So, as we look at this psalm, we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see that God's people align their hearts with God's chosen king. God's people align their hearts with God's chosen king. Second, we're going to see that God's people remember his past acts of deliverance. God's people remember God's past acts of deliverance. And third, we're going to connect the psalm to Jesus. Okay, so first point. God's people align their hearts with God's chosen king. Okay, we're going to have a quick English grammar lesson. So I hope you came, came ready for an English grammar lesson. Let's take a look at the verbs in this passage. May the Lord answer. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help. May he remember all your offerings. May he grant you. May, he, may, we, may we shout. May the Lord fulfill. Um, and if you skip down to verse 9, may he answer us when we call. Most of the verbs in this psalm use the English modal auxiliary verb, may. And uh, how do we use this word in English? Let's, let's do a quick review. Um, well, it can be used to express a possibility. 
in Star Wars A New Hope, when Darth Vader says, she may yet be of some use to us, he's referring to the possibility that Princess Leia may be some use to the Empire. It's a possibility, but not a certainty. And if you watch the movie, you'll know it doesn't quite turn out that way. Um, so if the may can be used to express possibility. Alternatively, may can be used to express permission. When Grand Moff Tarkin tells the Death Star technicians, you may fire when ready, he's giving them permission to fire the Death Star. Finally, though, if we flip the word order and we put may in front of the subject, then it's a form that can be used to express a sincere wish, like a prayer or a blessing. May the force be with you. It's this last category of sincere wish that we find in this psalm. These repeated mays tell us something about the wishes, the desires of God's people. And I think the ESV has correctly translated the Hebrew of the verbs here. These verbs communicate the settled desire of the people. This psalm then models the heart attitude that God's people are supposed to have towards the king. This psalm is somewhere between a prayer and a blessing. Like a blessing, it's spoken to the king, the one who's being blessed, but it's also addressed to God in faith that he will deliver. So let's break this down. What sort of blessing should the people speak over the king? What kind of heart attitude does that reveal? Well, most of these May statements seem to revolve around desiring that God would answer the king's prayer. Verse 1, may the Lord answer you. Verse 3, may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Verse 4, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Verse 5, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. The people have aligned their thoughts and desires with the thoughts and desires of the king. In fact, they are so in sync with him that we move from may the Lord answer you in verse 1 and he will answer him in verse 6 to may he answer us when we call in verse 9. The king's requests have now become the people's requests. And his deliverance is going to be their joy. Verse 5. Let us shout for joy at your victory and lift the banner in the name of our God or maybe... Uh, praise in the name of our God. That last Hebrew verb is a little ambiguous. Is it about banners or is it about praising? Either way, though, the point is clear. The people desire to rejoice in the king's victory. Do you remember how alone David felt in some of the Psalms leading up to this? In Psalm 12:1, he said that the faithful had vanished from among humanity. And yet now a whole people rises up to bless him and pledge their support. David's call for help is no longer a solo. The people, too, call out for God's deliverance. And in fact, they use some of the same imagery. Verse 1, may the name of Jacob protect you. We might translate that more literally. May the name of the God of Jacob lift you up. This echoes the imagery from Psalm 18 of God lifting David up and setting him safely on a rock. And the people recognize that the king's deliverance comes from God, that it comes through God's law and God's sanctuary. 
Between Psalm 18 and this one, we've, of course, had Psalm 19 to remind us about the sweetness of the law. And here we were reminded that the law gives the king access to God through the temple or the sanctuary on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Verse 2, may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. You see, because the king has this access to God, he can bring sacrifices with an assurance that God will hear him in his sanctuary. Verse 3, may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. The law gives the king access to bring his request before God in the sanctuary. And verse 6 says, he will answer him from his holy heaven. So there's actually two sanctuaries in this psalm. There's a physical sanctuary on earth in Jerusalem, and there's a heavenly sanctuary. But there's such a link between these two that the king's actions in the, in the uh, tabernacle in Jerusalem will be seen from the ultimate sanctuary in heaven, of which the tabernacle is a copy. The temple in Jerusalem, you see, connects heaven and earth so that human prayers can be heard by God. If you're interested in learning more about that, you can go take a look at Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8, where he explains that the real significance of the sanctuary is not that a physical building can contain the infinite God. That's not the point of the tabernacle or the temple. Rather, through this building, the prayers of God's people will be heard in heaven. So once again, we're back to the theme of the king's prayers being heard. All this could perhaps be summarized in the one direct imperative in this passage from verse 9. O Lord, save the king. They don't ask for their own salvation, but for the king's salvation, because they know that their good is so closely bound up with the king's good that his salvation will be their salvation as well. So, God's people align themselves with God's kingdom by supporting God's chosen king. And they do this by identifying their plans and their desires with the king's plans and desires, by aligning their hearts with his. How do we, how do we apply this point to our lives? Well, to push the fast forward a little bit on the biblical story here, we also have a king, and his name is Jesus, God's chosen Messiah. He's the greater David, and we, the church, are his people. Now, we don't need to pray for God to save him, right? Because uh, Jesus has already triumphed over death and the devil at the cross. He's risen from the dead. He's already been seated in the heavenly places with power and majesty. Um, but as the author of the Hebrews says, we don't yet see all things placed under his feet. Jesus may be king, but there are still many hearts where his kingship is not recognized. That's why he's taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What do we pray for when we pray those words? What does it mean for God's kingdom to come? It means for hearts to be so transformed by their encounter with Jesus that they willingly bend the knee to his sovereignty and seek to carry out his will on earth, just as the angels do in heaven. Every time the light of the gospel dawns in a darkened heart, God's kingdom gets one citizen bigger. So the application for this point is not for us to pray that for God to save King Jesus, 
He's already been saved. What David's generation looked forward to in the future with hope, we know has already been accomplished in Christ. Nevertheless, we should still pray for God's kingdom to come. And that means aligning our hearts with Jesus' heart. As our call to confession said, we are to set our minds on the things that are above where Christ is. So let me ask you tonight, is your heart where Jesus' heart is? Are you desiring what he desires? Are you praying for what he is praying for? Now, that's actually kind of a big question to ask, isn't it? Um, Jesus desires a lot of things. Uh, he has zeal for God's holiness. He has compassion towards the lost. He's angry at injustice against the oppressed. He cares for the sick. He shows grace and love to sinners. He rebukes the hard-hearted and self-righteous. Studying to be like Jesus is a life's work. For tonight, though, let me ask you to think about this question for your upcoming week. No doubt you have made some plans of your own about what you want to get done. Ask yourself, what might Jesus' plan be? Might that look like sharing the good news about Jesus with a friend? Putting aside some money or time to help somebody in need? Making an extra effort to be a servant in your workplace or in your home? What might this week look like if God's kingdom was the focus of your heart's desire? When we pray, thy kingdom come, we should be praying for our own hearts as well. That our wills would be united with Jesus' will. This is the work of his spirit in us. The spirit who united us to Christ when we first believed and had faith in him, in him works that union ever more closely into us as we are conformed to him. That spirit is at work in the whole church as the church is united to Jesus who is the head that gives life to every part of the body so that we all grow up together into mature Christ-likeness. Okay, so that's the first point. God's people align themselves with his kingdom by aligning their hearts with his king. And we've seen that through a study of these May statements. But for the second point, we're going to turn to the indicative statement of fact sentences in this chapter. So the second point, God's people find assurance by remembering God's past acts of deliverance. Verse 6 now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Okay, so I have a little bit of a quibble with the ESV for the verb tenses here. Verb tense is often very difficult in Hebrew poetry. But the last verb of verb, verse 8 really ought to be past tense. So I'm taking all the verbs in 6 through 8, with the exception of he will answer, as occurring in the past. I think the psalmist is looking backward. The people are looking backward to God's past acts of deliverance as the assurance that God will act to save in the future. I might suggest particularly that Psalm 18 might be in view here. We've just come from this great psalm of deliverance, and it's appropriate that the people should look back at this uh, example of God acting in power and might and glory to deliver his Messiah. So with that in mind, let's go back to verse 6. Now I know that the Lord has saved his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. This I who chimes in here at this point is probably David himself. 
Now, that, that might feel a little weird to you. You might say, well, but, I mean, is he referring to himself in the third person? You know, that seems, when he says that the Lord saves his anointed or he will answer him, doesn't that seem a bit weird? But David actually does that a lot when he's repeating God's promise to the king. We just saw that in Psalm 1850, for example. That may be because he rec- recognizes this promise isn't just for him. It's not just about David, but for his successors as well the future kings and messiahs who will reign in Israel as God's representative. Of course, leading up to one ultimate one. Whatever the case, it is because God has acted to save David in the past that David has this assurance for the future. He knows the mighty saving arm of God, and so he does not fear for the future. In verse 7, we the people join back in. Uh, But remember, we're going to put it in the past tense. And I'd also note that the verb translated here to trust is perhaps more accurately to remember. Uh, So putting that all together, we get for verse 7, some remembered chariots and some horses, but we remembered the name of the Lord our God. Okay, so it might sound a little awkward in English to talk about remembering chariots and horses, but the point is that this is where their minds were. This is what they were thinking about. Um, As they're ready to go into battle for these folks, they're comforting themselves by running over in their minds the power of their battle implements. Kids, do you know what a chariot is? It's an implement of ancient warfare where you get two to four horses and you hook them up to a kind of wagon contraption with wheels. It's like the tank of the ancient world. If you get that thing rolling over level ground, it can just plow right through Uh, ranks of men. It's terrifying. And guess what? The Israelites didn't usually have very many chariots. They stood at a strategic disadvantage. They were outgunned by a superior equipped enemy. And yet, that's not where the mind of God's people is on the eve of battle. They are not remembering going over and over in their head, the power and might of their man-made military, they are remembering the name of the Lord their God. God has put his name upon them. He has staked his honor on Israel, and so they have nothing to be afraid of. Even if in human terms, they they might seem to be fighting against hopeless odds. Just like God dealt with Pharaoh's chariots back at the Red Sea so he can deal with any of the chariots Israel faces thereafter. Verse 8 gives us the outcome. They collapsed and fell, but we rose and stood upright, or maybe rose and were restored. The last verb, again, is a little tricky. There's a couple of tricky verbs in this passage, but the overall meaning is still clear. Those who are mighty and powerful in the world's eyes with the very best and latest military equipment who have their minds focused on their earthly power, they've been brought low. While those who kept their minds on God and God's promises have been lifted up. So David, along with the whole people, finds assurance of God's future deliverance by remembering God's past acts of deliverance. There's still going to be struggles ahead, mind you. The Psalter is not just all going to be rainbows and unicorns from this point out. Although if you are reading the King James Version, there will be a couple unicorns in there. 
But David's going to go through some serious suffering still. And there's going to be moments when he feels alone and abandoned by God. We're not even going to go that many Psalms before we get to those. But now he has learned something of God's faithfulness to his promise. He has something more to hold on to in future difficulty. He can look back to this past experience of God's deliverance. What about you tonight? Have you had trials in your life that God has brought you through? Have you had moments in your life where you were without hope? And yet, despite it all, God showed his grace to you in a wonderful way. It's easy to forget those moments, isn't it? I know I tend to do that. I get very wrapped up in the problems of the now. Uh, but once I get past them, I just find a new set of problems and worry about those instead. I, I don't tend to remember the ways that God has delivered me in the past. But the spiritual discipline of remembering is one that Scripture repeatedly calls us to. Thinking about, meditating on God's past goodness to us can be a mighty help in trial. These reminders can be a powerful weapon against Satan when he tries to convince us that we should give up, that God doesn't care and won't act to deliver us. Do you have moments like this you can go back to? My mother calls these Ebenezer's. You know, after the stone that Samuel sets up when God delivers Israel of victory in battle. The name Ebenezer means stone of help. The stone was there to remind them of what God had done for them. What are your Ebenezer's? Is there a time in your life where you could see God's clear goodness very, very clearly? If so, hold on to that. Don't let it go. Don't get so caught up in the now that you forget to remember how God has showed his commitment to you in the past. So that's point two. God's people remember what he has done for them. Point three. How does this psalm connect us to Jesus? Well, obviously, I've already gotten a little ahead of myself and talked about Jesus a bunch of times already. But I think it's still important to take some time at the end of this sermon to remember not only what we are called to do, but what Jesus has done for us. So I want to close by meditating on just one way in which this psalm is fulfilled in Jesus. I want us to focus on the question, where is Jesus right now? Kids, do you know the answer to this one? Where is Jesus right now? At God's right hand. That's right. Jesus is at the Father's right hand in heaven, seated and interceding for us. How do we know that? Well, Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And, and what's interceding, in case, in case you don't know that word? It means when you take up somebody else's cause, the things they need, and bring them to somebody else. Jesus is bringing his people before God in prayer. Right now, that's what he's doing. Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, so not the earthly temple in Jerusalem, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus is in God's presence for us on our behalf. 
In Psalm 20, the people pray that their king's sacrifices would be accepted as pleasing to God so that God would listen to his requests. But now Jesus has offered the final sacrifice for sin and it has been accepted by God. Jesus' prayers were heard. His sacrifice was honored by God. He was raised from the dead and enthroned in heaven. And so what what does all this mean? Well, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then again in Hebrews 10.19, We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Jesus' prayer makes our prayer possible. You see, as much as we are called to pray, and we are, to align our hearts with the kingdom of God, Jesus' prayer is the definitive one. John 17 tells us that Jesus went to the cross praying for his people. And uh, Mike's been reminding us about the story of Peter this morning in Luke 22. What does it say? Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus' prayer makes all the difference. And through his sacrifice, this prayer has entered into the heavenly places and been accepted before God. This is what gives our prayer meaning. Our prayers come to God purified through Jesus' sacrifice. Our sin doesn't need to keep us away. We can come to God and ask him for help despite our weaknesses, despite our sins, because Jesus has prayed perfectly for us and continues to pray for us even now. So, as you strive to remember God's goodness, as you strive to align your hearts with Jesus, remember that Jesus is already on the throne. His work has been definitively accomplished. That's something we can rest in. That's something we can have confidence in. God has answered his king. God has saved his king. And so we can be assured that his kingdom will come in our lives and in our world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us a king in Jesus. A king who doesn't use his power to exploit us or lord it over us, but a king who uses his power to sacrifice himself for us, coming in weakness and dying for us that we might be saved. A king who for the joy set before him persevered in prayer through his death and persevered in prayer into, into resurrection and, and seating at your right hand. Thank you that our prayer comes to you through his sacrifice and through his prayer, that our Savior is praying for us so that we can know that we, will co- we can come to you and find grace and love. In Jesus' name, amen.